0: Hi, it's Casey. Thank you for shining on today. You could spend a weekend at Kripalu in Massachusetts learning with the mystic and the physicist, a husband and wife team in September. Half of that duo, Deirdre Hayde, will be here with details coming up and she'll talk about the tree of life and even have a meditation for us. I'm going to have details on the women's retreat, my women's retreat coming up at Graymore and Garrison next month. That's on the way. But first, meet Dr. Jason Powers. He's a dad, a doctor, and a recovering addict. If you know or love anyone who struggles with addiction, Jason's book will help. It's called When the Servant Becomes the Master, a comprehensive guide for those who suffer from addiction and for the people who want to help them. The first thing you need to know is that no one wants to be an addict. What else do addicts need us to know?
1: That they're suffering that even though it looks like them, the, the words, the actions are sort of the survival mechanism triggered by a disease that hijacks the brain. So even though there's some choice initially to to use once addiction is on, it's not really them anymore. And I I can give you a personal example. When I was uh, intervened on, you know, family gathered around me and they told me if I didn't go to treatment that they would turn me into the Texas State Board of Medical Examiner as well. Of course, I had some creative places that they could go. And I wasn't very pleasant, but Looking back I have hindsight and really what was happening was my soul said what took you guys so long. So th- there is that element of they're in there but don't confuse the actions with the person it's really the disease.
0: So you were practicing medicine and you were addicted to what?
1: You name it I mean not heroin or cocaine and probably because my fear of needles and I didn't know anybody at that had either. but alcohol and then my wife sort of caught on so pills were easy to hide you know they could be concealed in pockets and they didn't smell and I had a DEA license so I mean I, I was practicing medicine but not really full-time I sort of had a concierge practice and you know I was functional about two hours a day it was really disgusting but um, <laughs> thank God that's in the past
0: yeah why did you want to self-medicate
1: well great question um, hmm uh, it was more of us sort of not having any other solution. Um, it was, you know, being uncomfortable for so long and then finding a way out of, the, you know, kind of the messy mind, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really the, the tool that I had since I was 13 and it was comfortable and, I mean, it was hell, but uh, yeah. Thank God I don't have to anymore. I've got other you know, tools at my disposal. I didn't have them.
0: When the servant becomes the master, isn't it amazing how you know, people take their first drink when they're a teenager? And for some people, it can just be very sneaky, this addiction that catches up with them. And for other people, they don't become addicted. Why?
1: Um, that's a great question. So, you know, we're exploring that. We look at, we're looking at some genetic markers. There's certain gene combinations and certain genes that we're finding. But really, you know, if you've got a strong family history, you've got a really higher chance of developing alcoholism. You also have higher circulating stress hormones. And also, we know that people who've got a strong family history of alcoholism react to alcohol differently in terms of greater stress relief. They get more relief. They also have a better reward response. So there's more endorphins and dopamine that are kicked out Mm when you drink. Like, there was an experiment we did. I talk about it in the book of uh, 13-year-old boys. This was a long time ago. You know, somebody did this experiment where they had 13-year-old boys that never had alcohol before. They compared fathers who had alcoholism and boys with fathers who had alcoholism and boys with fathers that didn't. And these boys didn't know what beer was. They didn't choose the response. But the the boys whose fathers had alcoholism could hold their liquor better. That is, they swayed less, they they rated themselves as less, you know, drunk. And so it's like it, it's more rewarding, and uh, there's less negative side effects. So. It's baffling on one hand, and on the other hand, you know, we know people also develop alcoholism because they're trying to run away from something, kind of like I alluded to. You know, there's depression, anxiety, there's trauma, there's grief, there's, there's who knows also. It can happen to anybody.
0: When the servant becomes the master is the book. Now, for people listening who have someone they love that's addicted, how can we help those people get to where you got, where finally you were intervened on, and a little part of your spirit said, oh, thank God you're here. You know, while you, your mouth didn't say that, your mouth was saying other things, but a little part of your spirit relaxed. How can we get the people we love to that point where they say, uncle, I surrender?
1: So, I, I yeah, it's a great question. You know, people think that you have to let your loved one or your employee or somebody you work with or whatever family member hit bottom. And and that's not true because what it what intervening does is it creates a loving bottom higher than what they would reach otherwise. Like, mm-hmm. I had no doubt I was going to die. You know, I, I was not, it wasn't pretty, but you don't have to necessarily do a formal intervention. If you express your concern to somebody in that way, you express your concern, not judgment, but, hey, w- when I see you drink or when you were acting that way, I I thought that you were drunk, and that makes me scared, and I'm worried about you, and I love you, and I'm here for you. And if you, if you really just kind of reach out that way, then that's, that's a lot, because you really, you, you don't want to push them away when they're downward spiraling, because then you're not going to be in touch with them when they really, really need when you, and they're, they're not going to you. know it's really dangerous. Right.
0: All right, so tough love. Where does tough love fit into the world of addiction?
1: Oh man, so yeah, the reason why it's not called tough harshness is because it is the proper use of the character strength of love. Like when you when you love too much, then that's what people can you know call enabling. That is, you know, despite what they're doing, you just keep giving them money and a place to live and sweeping up after them and, you know, giving them shelter even though it's contributing to the problem. That's when you're overusing love and it's getting used against you. Tough love is... You know, it it sounds harsh, but it's right. It's a golden mean. It's using that character strength in the right amount, so that you're loving not too much, not too little. And it can look like, um, hey, if you don't go in to get treatment, then I, 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 sorry, you can't live here. And I need to change the locks on the doors. I love you, and and I need to rescue both of us. Like mm-hmm. I'm going down with you. So I'm doing this for myself, type of
0: thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been to a mini Al-Anon meeting. And it's amazing how the people who give the care to the addicts don't realize how depleted they themselves are.
1: Oh, absolutely! I recommend anybody uh, in the treatment field go to Al-Anon meetings because you uh, were powerless over others, and and we tend to forget, you know, mm-hmm. because we're in the we're in sort of in the power role in the in the treatment center. But it, it's a tough biz; it yeah. really is. Yeah.
0: Neuroplasticity. Talk to us about what the brain can do when recovering from addiction.
1: Studies have shown that you know alcoholics have brain shrinkage. It's called atrophy. But we you know, like within a very short period of time, the brain can actually regrow. It develops volume again to normal. Um, it does take a long time. The longer you drink, but you know the brain is amazing. It's like a piece of clay. So you know your brain and your body is going to respond to whatever you do. So whatever habits you create, your body, your brain are going to lay down pathways that make it easier to do that's why we're sort of able to eat in the dark but like we start out as infants we stink at eating. Like we get food on our face, on Mm -hmm. the floor, we're just terrible. But now it's become so much part of our body um, and brain that we could do it while we're talking, we could do it while we're walking, but infants can't do that. So the same thing is with sort of recovery. And that is like when you make new connections and you start to, you know, have nurturing relationships and develop meaning, all these things rewire the brain so that it's positively affirming and it sort of fuels the fire of recovery.
0: So let me ask you this, what do you reach for now instead of a drink or a pill?
1: An addict. I still have addiction. Um, I'm sober uh, coming up on 15 years. So, what do I do? Um, You know, you name it. I I love reading and writing that's how i enter the state of flow i, I love exercise i spend I, I tell you i got three kids and they keep me so busy i'm like a chauffeur butler maid you know benefactor for three people that basically complain a lot <laughs> so <laughs> you know and, and i don't you know i just don't feel like i need to escape life anymore and and i'm pretty content so it just doesn't cross my mind but um that's not to say i'm i'm cured whatsoever because you know i look i do everything deep end Meaning, you know, I, I got this, that term from Eric Clapton's autobiography, when he talks about how people like us, like we're deep end folks, when he started ski shooting, he, he bought every single, you know, rifle and ammo you could. And same thing, like when I started meditating, I bought all the cushions and everything, and now they're just in the corner. Right. <laughs> and But, you know, I hate using the term um, uh, addicted personality or that type of thing. But really, I just, yeah, it's hard to do everything in balance, and and so the healthier habits, uh, the more healthy habits that you can sort of fill your life up with and have alternatives, the less you're going to like go back to that lifestyle. Fill
0: your life with healthy habits. Jason Powers, one of the top addiction doctors in Houston, his myth-busting book is called When the Servant Becomes the Master. Dr. Powers doesn't have a huge presence online, but you can get the book anywhere. And to be entered in this week's drawing to win a copy of this book, just email me from the website Casey.co. And by the way, congratulations to Adam and Teresa, two recent book winners from The Shine On Show. Thanks for writing in. I love to hear from you. I hope you enjoyed the books. Next up, we're going to learn about The Tree of Life from the wife of the man who gave us the movie What the Bleep Do We Know? That husband and wife team, the mystic and the physicist coming to Crepalo. Details on the way.
2: Have you ever experienced a wish come true? For a child battling a critical illness, a wish come true can be a turning point. One song, one dance, one game, one adventure. One moment changes everything. Make-A-Wish needs your support to grant the wish of every eligible child. Visit wish.org now to help grant more life-changing wishes. Together, we
3: can transform lives, one wish at a time. We don't believe the future can wait for the future. We are City of Hope doctors. We advance science that saves lives. City of Hope research has led to the development of synthetic human insulin and four of the most widely used cancer-fighting drugs. We are maximizing the potential of immunotherapy and making precision medicine a reality. We have performed more than 13,000 bone marrow and stem cell transplants with unparalleled survival rates. With three manufacturing facilities, we can turn laboratory discoveries into new therapies faster. Today, we are pioneering stem cell therapies for patients with cancer, diabetes, even autoimmune diseases. It's not enough to promise patients a future cure, we must find it now. For over a century, we've been driven to discover the answers that don't exist. Find out more at cityofhope.org.
0: Hi, it's Casey. Thank you for shining on today. Coming up soon, August 17th through the 19th, I'm leading the second annual Women's Retreat at Graymore Spiritual Life Center in Garrison, New York. You can get all the details at casey.co, K-A-C-E-Y dot C-O. You're going to have a lot of free time to decompress and journal or hike at beautiful moor. We're right on the Appalachian Trail. I mean, right on the Appalachian Trail. You can walk out of your room and onto the trail. So there'll be some hiking. We'll also have a bonfire, some great speakers lining them up right now. So come refresh your soul August 17th, 18th, and 19th. Visit casey.co for more. Now meet our next Shine On guest, Deirdre Haid. She will introduce you to the sapphire cephalote inside you, Deirdre is the creator of The Radiance Journey, an energetic practice for personal growth. She's part of Jack Canfield's Transformational Leadership Council, a student of A Course in Miracles. This mystic is married to a physicist, and together they will present a weekend retreat at Kripalu in Massachusetts in September. Deirdre is also a 20-year student of Kabbalah the mystical branch of Judaism, you've no doubt seen Tree of Life jewelry, Tree of Life art, Tree of Life wall hangings. What this tree represents is the energetic blueprint inside of you that connects you to your own spiritual essence.
4: This energetic blueprint is the story of creation. Carried within it are expanded levels of consciousness, expanded experiences of love, of connection with a greater reality, compassion, understanding, wisdom. And when you connect with your tree of life, you connect into the inner state of spirituality with yourself. And that's what the tree of life journey is. And it's really quite extraordinary. Is it hard to learn? not hard to learn at all, and I have a guided meditation which takes you through the Tree of Life where I explain what each component of the Tree of Life is. I also have on my website several pages of information for you to learn about the Tree of Life. Simple
0: system. Now, how long is this meditation?
4: 35 to 40 minutes. And uh, it takes you through the ten sephirotes. Now, the sephirotes you would think of them as chakras, but they're different than chakras, but they're an energy point in your body from which chocolate. And there are 10 cephalotes, and these cephalotes translate, cephalotes is a Hebrew word, they mean sapphire. The direct translation is sapphire.
0: That's amazing. I say cephalote all the time in crossword puzzles, and I have no idea what they're talking about.
4: <laughs> That's what they're talking about. Deirdre Haid, we
0: are talking about your Tree of Life meditation, just 35 minutes long. We're going to find it on your website. You are quite the expert on all things, you know, relating to the divine. And what I loved, I I came across a little tidbit that when you were just a teenager, you ran into Joseph Campbell?
4: Yes, my parents, who were academics at the University of Tennessee, uh, were part of a group who brought Joseph Campbell to the University of Memphis. And because of that, I got to meet him uh, after he spoke in the auditorium. And I got to have a personal conversation with him for about an hour.
0: I know from the film, The Graduate, uh, one of the characters was warned to go into plastics or something like that. That's right. And you were warned not to go into anthropology by right. the mythologist, the American mythologist, Joseph Campbell, himself. Why didn't he want you to study anthropology, which was going to be your field?
4: He said that I already had what all anthropologists were looking for and that it would ruin it for me, so not to go into anthropology.
0: What are anthropologists looking for that you had?
4: I also was a dancer and choreographer, and he said he felt I should continue and be a dancer. He said that anyone who goes into anthropology is actually looking for consciousness, looking for themselves, looking for a deeper connection with life. So he said he felt that I should continue a dance because he felt that anthropology would actually shut down what it was I had. So obviously he must have seen something that at the time I didn't quite understand. But I listened to him and I I went into dance and, and choreography. And I enjoyed it tremendously. I was born a spiritual being, very, very aware of a spiritual being. Uh, since a young age, I had a, a connection with nature, with the trees. Angels definitely could see light or beings of light that would share information with me from the age of five, four, five, six, seven, eight. So the dance, I mean, it didn't bring me spirituality, but in dance, I truly had spirituality. I felt a connection. I went into a state of one of the trans- State. Well, I was ecstatic. So I'm really glad that that was the top I chose.
0: Do you ever think it was a coincidence that you were introduced to the American mythologist Joseph Campbell when you were just a teenager?
4: No, I don't think it was a coincidence at all. I think it was uh, synchronicity between souls. And I'll tell you something interesting is that uh, I recently uh, got married about four years ago, and my husband and I were looking for a house uh, here in California, and we actually found our dream house on the same street that uh, Joseph Campbell, all his writings, his archives are kept at the Pacifica Institute in Montecito, California. So I walk by his um, the building with all his archives every day. That's beautiful. And, and I don't you, think that's a coincidence either, yeah.
0: And you feel right at home.
4: Right at home, I certainly do.
0: All right. Well, we are off to learn more about the Tree of Life Meditation. And I say Kabbalah, but you say something else. How did you pronounce it? Kabbalah. Kabbalah. Okay. It's beautiful Uh, and lyrical. What is something we can do right now today? To get in touch with something easy that we could do, just sitting right here. What could we do right now to get in touch with this tree of life, energetic blueprint that is a, a gateway to wonderful things? How can we reach it?
4: What we to do right now is just very simply close your eyes and imagine that you are leaning against a beautiful tree in a beautiful garden. And this tree, the, the the trunk of this tree that's pressing against your back is a, a form of an energy a knowledge. And this tree is supporting you, or giving you strength and connection to the greater reality. And in your body, this beautiful tree is giving you energy, life force, the energy of creation. Now you can open your eyes.
0: I love it. I could do this up against a real tree, too, couldn't I? Yes,
4: you could. And it's really, really special when you do that.
0: All right. I can't wait to hear your meditation. I'm looking forward to it. Now, you mentioned earlier your husband, and you're a newlywed. Yes. And that is very exciting. And most people who listen to this show will have heard of your husband, or at least his film, William Arntz, the creator of What the Bleep Do We Know? Boy, were you two meant to meet
4: Yes, I think we were. I wish we'd met earlier, but at least we've met now, and we we were both very, very excited to meet each other, and he, he is a remarkable man, and I'm honored to be with someone as brilliant as him, and we had a lot of fun exploring consciousness and working together and Uh, sharing, teaching, traveling around. We have a a, a presentation we're giving now uh, called the Mystic and the Physicist. We're going to be at the Kripalu Yoga Center in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. September 21st through the 23rd. We're going to be presenting the scientific physics of neuroplasticity and how the brain works. And I'm going to be sharing mystical teachings of the Kabbalah Tree of Life. It's going to be a lot of fun. All right. And and Kripalu is so beautiful.
0: Poet, mystic guide, Deidre Haid, coming to Kripalu in September. Get to know the Tree of Life inside you. Visit it morning and night and connect deeply to your own energy. More at DeirdreHay.com, And of course, you can always find links to all of the weekly guests at Casey.co. We'll come back in a bit for our Thought for the Day.
2: On the battlefield, there's a saying America's military men and women live by. Never leave a fallen warrior behind, ever. Off the battlefield, Wounded Warrior Project operates with the same goal. We leave no warrior behind. Wounded Warrior Project is a nonprofit organization created to help our men and women returning home with the scars of war. Whether those scars are physical or mental, we're here to make sure that they heal. And whether it's helping those with post-traumatic stress disorder live a normal life again, or giving much needed support to injured warriors and veterans' hospitals. Because no one deserves our help more than the men and women who risk their lives to keep us safe. Wounded Warrior Project. We never leave a fallen warrior behind, ever. Learn more about what we do at woundedwarriorproject.org. Right now, Doctors Without Borders medical teams are operating in some of the most remote and dangerous corners of the world. When front yards become front lines, when disaster erupts, when disease rages, when communities collapse under crisis, at the crossroads of conflict and epidemic, where there are no hospitals. That's where we operate. We go where conditions are the worst because that's where we're needed most. In nearly 70 countries, we're saving lives threatened by violence, disease, malnutrition, and catastrophic events. Donors are vital to our mission. Your response is critical to our response in places where a few others will go. That's where we operate. Learn more at doctorswithoutborders.org.
3: This is Josh Demel, and we have a situation here. Our planet's endangered species are vanishing at an alarming rate. Connect the dots and you'll discover a fine line separates a buyer from a killer. In other words, if you travel abroad and buy an illegal wildlife product, you're paying for the life of an endangered animal. So please, don't do it. When the buying stops, the killing can too. For more information, visit wildaid.org.
0: Hi, it's Casey. Thank you for shining on today. Please take a minute to subscribe to the podcast and rate the podcast at iTunes.com and SoundCloud.com and connect anytime at Casey.co. That's where you can find out about next month's weekend retreat in Garrison. And if you have any suggestions about guests you'd like to hear on this show, maybe you read an inspiring book or met an inspiring person and want to share the news, let me know. Drop me a line from the website k-a-c-e-y Hey, thanks for sticking around for the thought for the day. It's from Joseph Campbell, the mythologist who said, The goal of life is to make your heartbeat match the beat of the universe to match your nature with nature. Go get your heartbeat out in nature. Shine